Hello, you're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. My name is Andrew Robinson, and today's date is September 25th, 2020. Earlier this week, we hosted a geopolitical Zoom webinar. Panelists included Lieutenant General Bob Walsh, Major General James Spider-Marks, and our macro strategist Peter Chur. The panel was moderated by Rachel Washburn, and she does a great job of setting the table. Welcome to Academy Security's geopolitical webinar. We are glad you joined us today. Our team is grateful to have the opportunity to share insights with you. During this call, we hope to provide a unique perspective to what has become a top of mind issue. Today, we're gonna discuss the geostrategic phase as we head into the election, as well as any anticipated policy changes based on the election outcome and what these changes may mean for companies and investors. For those unfamiliar with Academy, we are a veteran and minority owned investment bank Academy Securities has a social mission to hire, train, and mentor post-9-11 veterans and is nearly 50% veteran staffed. But beyond our designation and social mission, our team is committed to providing real value to our clients and partners. At the intersection of authenticity and capability for our firm is our geopolitical intelligence group. General Spider Marks and Bob Walsh, two of our 14 geopolitical advisory board members, have over 65 years of service to nation, shaping foreign policy and working on the most complicated and dynamic challenges facing the United States and the international community. They're uniquely equipped to evaluate geopolitical risk in an ever-evolving and increasingly volatile environment. But an integral element of our geopolitical offering is the valuable market overlay provided by Peter Chur, our head of macro strategy. With over 25 years of industry experience, Peter contextualizes the input of our team of retired admirals and generals, helping provide investors and corporations alike understanding of the implications of national security and policy changes. Without further delay, General Marks, I'd like to pose the first question to you. Depending on the results of the election, how do you anticipate the U.S. approach to the Middle East evolving? Oh, great question, Rachel. And again, let me take a step back and thank everybody for uh, joining us this afternoon. Um, clearly, over the past two decades, the United States has been a con- in a continual state of conflict, and most of that has been in the Middle East. Obviously, we've had some challenges in other parts of the world. I would not describe those as conflicts. I would describe those as challenges. We've also had some domestic uh, uh, terrorist um, challenges as well. But as we progress, whether this is a Biden administration or this is a Trump administration, Our focus on the Middle East has to remain very, very vigilant and very consistent. Here's the major challenge. You know, the recent peace deal that the president and this administration came up with, which frankly are great. I mean, it had been 30 years since any type of movement in terms of some type of reconciliation between Israel and any of its neighbors in the region. So this was the first step in three decades. But this had more to do with our relationship with Iran and with the rest of the region's relationship relative to Tehran, not necessarily direct flights from Tel Aviv to Abu Dhabi. As we continue to move down this path, the real challenge that we see is now the increasing presence of China and its efforts to try to establish a relationship with Tehran as well. Now, there's a real practical reason why China is doing that. Number one, it's the third consumer of fossil fuels in the world, yet it is the sixth in terms of production. They have a gap. They're looking at Tehran. They they can assume that Iran can fill that gap for them. Therefore, this coziness that we see going on. The challenge that we have 
is that if Iran, if we cannot get, if the United States and its partners cannot get its relationship straight in some way, we'll define this as we go along, with Beijing, our relationship in the, in the Middle East remains at great peril as well. We have to maintain a strong relationship with Saudi Arabia. That clearly is a counterbalance to Tehran. But if we don't continue the focus on Tehran, and if they were to move in the direction of trying to create nuclear weapons, you would see the nuclear weaponization of the Mideast, which is a non-starter for all of us. General Walsh, what is your view about the way policy could change to the Middle East? Yeah, thanks, Rachel. And thanks again, just as Spider said, uh, all our clients and uh, friends out there. Um, you know, I think one thing that to look at is it's, I find it interesting as you look at whether it would be Vice President Biden or President Trump continuing. In a lot of ways, as we go through across the globe here, in many ways, it's, it's a lot the same, their policies. How they approach it is different a little bit. There's some nuances, but I think as you kind of look at it, um, uh, their approach to this is very much the same. And in the Middle East, when we deal with Iran, um, I think if you look at it, both of them are looking at not being dr uh, drastically different. They're looking at, you know, being hardline on Iran, a little difference in the sense that the Trump administration has been focused on this maximum pressure campaign. And as we've seen, as the U.S. pulled out of the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, we did that unilaterally and pulled out and said, we're going to use U.S. sanctions and hope everybody else comes on board with it and the power of the U.S. will have that, that global implication. Uh, Vice President Biden said he's probably going to follow what the Obama administration did by putting us back into that Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action and, uh, and do that and rely more on getting heavy support that he can build from alliances and partnerships. I think as we go through a lot of these countries, we'll see kind of the same approach. Trump administration, more trying to do things unilaterally. The Biden administration would try to open this up much more. Um, when you step to the rest of the Middle East, I look at like um, Israel and you take a look at the approach to Israel. It's again, not a whole lot different. Heavy support to Israel, um, both trying to build coalitions. And, and in fact, the Trump with the recent wins, both with the United Arab Emirates uh, and also Bahrain with the Bahrainis, We've seen that support. Biden said he would continue to do that. He also said that he'd have an ironclad support for Israel. But while he does, he'd continue to put pressure on Israel to comply with what they've agreed to do. Um, interesting, he said that he would keep the embassy in Jerusalem, which is a very controversial piece that the, uh, the Trump administration had done. Um, and then when you step to like places like Syria, Biden's been adamant that he would pull the troops out of Syria but in essence, Trump has already pulled most of the troops out of Israel. There's only a few troops there still left in Syria. And I said Israel, I meant Syria. There's only a few there. And again, he's using it there to kind of protect the oil that's going to the Kurds. Um, when it comes to Turkey uh, and that piece, both again are being more hardline on Turkey and wanting to support the Kurds. Trump has been using the Kurds all along as an ally. Uh, Biden said he's gonna come down much harder on Turkey to, in, to be able to provide support for the Kurds. Uh, and then finally, I think uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, um, this is one, there is probably some difference there. The, um, the Trump administration has been working very closely with uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, they've supported 
the Saudi Arabian operations in Yemen, uh, which are counter Iran. And the Trump, the Biden administration or Obama administration also did the same thing. When it comes to GWAT, you know, look at that. They both have the same approach to global war on terrorism and going counterterrorism using small special operations teams, smaller footprints in countries, but pulling us both out of places like Iraq and Afghanistan. So in a lot of ways, nuanced approaches, but they're all pretty much down the same uh, lane as how they would approach the overall problem. There are definitely lots of overlap there. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think two things that are really important to think about as we look at the Middle East is it's a clear indication that as the U.S. has become energy independent, that there's less focus on the Middle East, right? These things would typically royal the oil markets or be positive for that. I think we've stepped away from that. So I think that's something to watch is what's going to happen to the energy markets, especially with the two um, parties probably leaning slightly different, one definitely heading more for green and clean energy. But also, I think really want to highlight here something that's going to be an ongoing theme in our macro for the past year is looking forward is this concept that we've been talking about a weak dollar. Ultimately, I think most of the weak dollar is going to come from the Fed, which we can talk about later. But you're going to see it raise its head in every geopolitical sphere there is. And what we're seeing in the Middle East is China aggressively wanting to purchase oil in their own currency. They're developing markets in their own currency with the Middle East. They're developing oil um, also in gold contracts. So I think you're going to see tying into everything we're talking about geostrategic, a lot of downward pressure on the dollar, which is something I think companies really have to think about going forward is not saying it's the end of the, you know, era of the dollar, but this dollar weakness is appearing in place over place. And a big part of that is China's strategy to encourage countries to trade directly with them in their own currencies. Very interesting. I think um, one of the topics that we've had the most cooperation between our geopolitical team and Peter Yu has been China and certainly um, no, no shortage of coverage on that. Uh, General Walsh, maybe you can start. How do you, do you see the policy around China changing uh, depending on the outcome of the election? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think, Rachel, you know, from a geostrategic standpoint, we typically kind of look at what's going on diplomatically, militarily, and along, along with the economic side. Um, but I think this has really kind of taken a little bit of a political twist as you look at it coming up to the election. So though Spider and I are not comfortable getting into a lot of politics, it's how the politics will approach how the administrations will handle dealing with China. Because the China um, strategy has really changed drastically with President Trump and his administration. I think they came out very, very strong with the national security strategy and called China out as a strategic competitor from the very beginning. But then as you kind of watch President Trump's individual actions, he really kind of came back to where he's comfortable with making deals, being more of a businessman, focused a lot on trade, uh, leveling the playing field, putting tariffs on China to try to level that, but really did a lot of uh, in personal engagements of President Xi Jinping in, uh, in China to try to develop that relationship to kind of work towards the economic side. As we've gotten closer and closer to the election, he's becoming more and more in line, I think, with his national security strategy and China becoming much more of a competitor. Um, the COVID piece was a major driver in this, the administration, putting a lot of fault on China for that, um, 
you know, where the U.S. may be today in the world because of COVID being started uh, in that pandemic being started in China and maybe China not being as transparent as they should. So he's become much more hardline when you've looked at that. And so when President or Vice President Biden comes in with his strategy that now he's looking for nuances to be different to win election, there's a hard thing to do when you've got a bipartisan Congress that is saying that we need to be tougher on China. And at the same time, you know, recent polls have shown that three quarters of American population views China in a bad light. So with that, he's really doubled down and said he's going to be tough on China. Uh, the nuance, not really a nuance, this is a pretty big difference is the Biden um, candidacy has really been pushing that he would come in and do things differently, build alliances, build partnerships, would not have pulled us out of things like the trans Pacific Partnership um, would put more pressure on world trade and dealing with those organizations, the WTO, uh, on how to handle China. So in essence, he wants to put the U.S. back at the head of the table of the global leadership side instead of the unilateral approach that, uh, that uh, President Trump has really done with, with China. He views a lot of what the... Uh, the the Trump approach has been has been very erratic in how they've dealt with it and criticizes the Trump administration of what have you really gotten out of this? Show me the details, the benefits of this hardline approach that you've taken uh, in this trade war. How has it really benefited us? So he's attacking, and we'll probably see that as we get into the debates on how he probably attacks Trump's approach to this as we go forward. But they're both pretty hard line, and he, he really can't become softer on China. In fact, where you've seen him double down is he said he's going to focus a lot more on uh, human rights, uh, a lot more on looking at um, potentially nuclear negotiations with China, and doubling down where he sees that Hong Kong, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province, Tibet, Mongolia, places like that where he views the Trump administration has not been tough enough on China, He's going to use that in the traditional way of dealing with countries like China and the way we've dealt with China in the past by using that international pressure on human rights to get China to comply in other areas. So to build an alliance around that area of human rights would be an approach I think we'd see the Biden administration take on differently than China. Absolutely. General Marks, I remember six years ago at this point, you writing about the Obama administration's uh, pivot to Asia. So certainly uh, not a new topic, but has evolved uh, with the Trump administration. Anything to add on how policy around China could change um, if there is a Biden victory? Well, we've always been pivoting to China. We've always been pivoting to Asia. As a young Asia hand, a number of decades ago in my earlier years as a young officer, we were always talking about the decade of China. Um, over the course of the last two decades, obviously, we've been, we've been really focusing on our counterterrorism efforts and trying to figure out what our presence needed to be to eliminate what those, those starters were, if you will, those, those leading indicators of why terrorist activity took place, et cetera, et cetera. And so we've got our hands on that. We did take our eye off the ball in terms of Asia. This really is a critical part of the world as we go forward. The South China Sea, the oil and gas reserves that exist there, the amount of trade that transits the South China Sea, the 
consistent and routine pressure and tension that exists between Taiwan and mainland China and in the juxtaposition of how both of those nations responded to or reacted to the, the pandemic, Taiwan never shut down. Its economy continued to flow along. The schools were not closed down. Things remained quasi-normal as compared to what happened in China and then what's happened across the globe as a result of the malfeasance. And I would say a sin of, if not commission, then omission on the part of the Chinese trying to control the narrative of the pandemic as opposed to trying to control the spread of the pandemic. But that's what happens in communist nations. So we really have an opportunity when you look at China and our vulnerability with China, and as Peter has really kind of laid out very beautifully for us and will today, you know, the vulnerability of our supply chains and how we need to try to think about repatriating our international and global supply chains. And there are alternatives to China. You've got Vietnam, you've got the Philippines, you've got Indonesia, you have India. Those countries collectively could challenge what we currently have in terms of a relationship with China. But we have to be willing to do that. And you can't simply turn on one switch and turn off another. There is some very hard lifting that needs to take place. And as Bob has described, how do we want to approach our relationship with China? Look, China's not going anywhere. It's a competitor. Many would say it's a predator. But how do we deal with them with that type of a existing view that we know it's going to be tough? We know we're not going to have complete agreement on topics, but where can we agree? Where is that within that Venn diagram? Where can we agree to, um, to work together to achieve similar goals? I think Bob laid out some very uh, important ones. And I think going forward, Peter, with his view of how our trade posture is, we really could create more of a cooperation with China while we continue to com compete on different levels. That's, yeah, that's great, Spider. I think one question we get asked a lot, so what changed in terms of policy? I think one of the catalysts that we had was really 5G, and we have not had really a transformational type technology. And I think that took some national security issues that had always been in the background, raised them to the forefront. Then the other is this war on the virus. And one of the things, not laying blame or anything, part of national security and national defense policy has always been to have a quote unquote wartime production facility or capacity, right? So we've always designed to be able to produce what we needed in the event of a war. And that's one reason Boeing, Fords, GMs always have a lot of support. They're a critical part of that wartime capacity. Here we had this war on the virus. And I think we showed up kind of sadly lacking in terms of our ability to produce PPE, our inability to produce the medical equipment that we needed. One of our generals who's not part of this call, General Chin, has often pointed out that the US military gets as much as 80% of its antibiotics from China. So you have this very awkward situation where you're seeing increasing friction between us and China, and yet they directly supply the US military you know, important health things. So I think we're gonna see either party shift and take a look at how do we use our supply chains at a national security level. So that's gonna be one part. And then I think moving beyond that, all companies are gonna start looking at this. I think questions that are gonna be asked are, how much should be in any one country? How dependent should we be on any one country? How do we make these things work going forward? I think both parties are gonna give incentives to companies to, you know, repatriate some manufacturing. 
I think the one thing that does not get talked about enough, but I'm starting to hear from a lot of ESG investors, I think people are going to start doing what I call attribution. So they're going to look at companies a little bit more closely and say, what does your supply chain look like? How robust is it? How safe is it? But also very importantly, are people in your supply chain maybe not as good actors as we would like to see? Are there people in your supply chain who maybe are not behaving well? So I think there's going to be pressure on corporations to do, quote unquote, the right thing. If you think back at the end of 2018, when a lot of companies were worried about triple B corporate debt, CEOs and CFOs took steps to protect their debt holders, not because they were trying to be kind to debt holders, but they felt that was the right thing to do for their stock. So I think you're going to see companies reevaluate how they want their supply chain to look, how they want to behave globally in the coming years. And part of that pressure is going to come from ESG investors. And now having said all this, I think one of the, this is ultimately going to be good. I, I look for an economy where as we look at bringing back some form of manufacturing, yes, a lot will be automated, but there's going to be people who have to run that factory. There's going to be more logistics. I think we have the potential to get back to a economy with as many jobs as we had in January 2020, but an economy where that mix of service and manufacturing is better tilted towards manufacturing. That would be a good thing. I do believe it's going to be fairly independent of who wins the election. I think both sides are headed this way. One might be more green, one might be more cooperative with China, one might be more cooperative with the world. But I think the potential for growth next year is going to be part infrastructure and a part manufacturing. And it's really an outcome of the events of the last year, both in terms of 5G, where Huawei has been a big part of that, and what we're seeing in terms of our fight on the virus. So I think it's going to be encouraging and there's a lot of positives that can come out of this. That's a really interesting point. Uh, we've pointed out as an organization that the discussion around China as a strategic competitor really did start with uh, technology, with China investing in technology that had military applications. So a great point made by you, Peter, about the way forward. Uh, General Marks, the next question for you, uh, really within the framework of the national security strategy discussing strategic competition, and especially with the overlay of the election, we can't not uh, discuss. Russia. So what is your viewpoint of how policy with regard to Russia, how it may evolve? I would say that if you were to look at either a Biden administration or a Trump administration, there are going to be some incredible similarities, as Bob laid out very well. There may be some process differences, but we have a big problem with, with Russia, primarily because Russia is not, a, and I would state with confidence, Russia is not a superpower. Its economy is in the crapper but it has a very strong leader and a strong leader that has an immense amount of support from its population. And it has some natural resources that are phenomenal. So that's a very toxic mix. And when you look at history, you realize very strong leader at some degree of risk, you have some real uh, challenges going forward because they tend to be very provocative. That's what Russia is doing right now. In fact, I would say, Russia is taking a page from our containment strategy, which guided the United States from the late 1940s until 1989, when the wall came down in the 91, when the Soviet Union collapsed. What the United States had was a very strong opponent. And that opponent described our being, our national strategy. Well, we lost our enemy in 1991, and we floundered a little bit. But what Putin has done is taken has taken a page from our containment that we exercised quite well, which was any place the Soviet Union pushed, we resisted. Well, right now, Russia is pushing 
and we are finding ourselves being resisted by them. They are doing an incredibly good job of finding gaps in our strategies and our alliances and are taking great advantage of it. Look, they've been in the Mideast longer than we have had a presence in the Mideast. They have a, now an increasingly relate, strong relationship with Syria. Why, why would you be surprised by that? They have an increasing relationship in Tehran, increasing with Turkey. They now have an economic relationship with Germany. Angela Merkel is looking at the Nord Stream 2 uh, initiative, and she might be backing off of that because of Putin's recent egregious use of weapons of mass destruction against uh, political opponents. Let's be frank, that's exactly what he's doing. But we don't have any way to resist what Russia is doing. We haven't figured out to ways that are effective in terms of pushing back on Russia, when what we have is, frankly, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic elements of power. Now, cobbled together, we can apply pressure to Russia, but they tend to get away with whatever they want because of their size, because of our historical animosity, because of their capacity, which is increasing militarily. So we tend to be somewhat deferential. It's important for the United States to shore up its relationship with the EU, not let that go down the path of a bunch of Brexits occurring in the EU, which could happen. There could be other tumblers that fall. But it's important for us to view Russia as a competitor in a way that allows us to have more partners join in on what that strategy exists, how that strategy reveals itself and how we build it out. General Walsh, anything to add to that point? Yeah, thanks, Rachel. You know, the national security strategy calls out both China and Russia as these strategic competitors. And General Marks laid this out very well. When you take a look at it, from a military standpoint, when we start to stack up, China's military growth is just at the exponential level. And the capabilities that we, they have, in many ways, are exceeding the capabilities we have. On the economic side, when you compare Russia to China, there's no comparison into the economic weight that China has. So from that side, it's a completely different type of competition they have. But Russia is one, as General Mark said, they are there to cause mischief. And a lot of the information we have is mischief in our elections, mischief really in anything that the U.S. does in the Middle East. They've been at opposite ends of us, whether it's been Libya, Syria, Iraq, all those kind of places. What I would say in the big difference here between a Biden administration and a Trump administration is really looking at how we approach things. Biden's approach to this is really that Trump has been cozying up to Putin. Um, but meanwhile, Trump will say he's been the toughest of any president on, on uh, Russia. And you can look at the support that's been given to Ukraine has been huge. Him coming down hard on the Nordstrom II that General Marx mentioned with Angela Merkel and the Germans got to step up. Uh, how much is this play coming up in elections? But it certainly shows that he says he's tough on Russia and wants to be tough on Russia. Now, Biden's viewpoint on a lot of this is he's going to show it by Trump talking about letting Russia back into the G7. He's saying, no way, Jose, he wouldn't let him in. You know, and uh, when it comes to arms control, there hasn't been a lot of talk about arms control you know, with the Trump administration. Biden's campaign approach is he wants to go back to the table. He wants to bring up the new START treaty and kind of tie Russia's hands in these areas. 
Um, I will probably say from the military standpoint, the reason we've kind of avoided this is we've seen Russia and China cheating so much on these any of these agreements, and China really hasn't been a part of those. But they're so far out in front, but we're really not ready to have those kind of discussions until we can at least get in the ballpark of catching up with some of the ranges, these long-range uh, weapons and stuff they have. From a political standpoint, I think um, Biden is trying to go back to where the Obama administration was. And again, Russia, uh, Trump is saying that no one's been tougher on Russia than, uh, than he has been. So that's one where I think there's probably a little bit of a difference there on how they approach it. I think Biden really would like to show that he's gonna to be tougher on Russia by building these alliances and partnerships and trying to continue to say that Trump hasn't been tough enough and has really kind of sided up to Putin in many ways. Peter, we spent a lot of time focused on how policy can change with a president uh, change, but it's obviously not the only element at stake here as we head into election season. Um, what it could significantly evolve uh, depending on the results in, in Congress? You know, I, I think we're looking at these political results right now. It, there's a lot of uncertainty. So I think from a macro, we're starting to see people put hedges on. Um, you know, I, I, talking to things, not only do we have the issue of who becomes president, it's what happens with Congress, what happens with the Senate. So I think there's a lot of ways that this could play out. I think when I look at the path from a macro standpoint, I'm mostly focused on the fact that I believe we are going to get infrastructure spending, which will be positive for the economy, regardless of how this plays out. And I do believe that we will also see um, some element of economic, you know, manufacturing repatriation regardless, how taxes and things plays out, that's gonna be a little bit tricky. So I think we wanna be a little bit cautious coming into the election in terms of positioning for risk. I think it's one reason we've seen so many corporations lock in debt. Everyone just kind of wants to be, you know, batting down the hatches and see how this plays out. And I think the generals have talked about quite confidently though, these things do work themselves out and the country has a very robust structure to ensure that we get from point A, the election to point B, you know, what Congress, the Senate, and the President look like in January and can get back to implementing policies to help the country grow. Thanks, Peter. And in the last few minutes before we open up for Q&A, um, wanna give our panelists an opportunity to address something that we've been hearing from clients a lot. Um, 2016 has showed us the threats our elections faced by adversarial meddling. The pandemic has certainly put an emphasis on other than in-person voting. And we are living in a particularly contentious political environment. All of this has led to the question, what happens if there is a contested election in November? And we're not discussing a run-of-the-mill contested election, but one where both sides seem to dig in their heels and there's a real concern about the resolution process. We want to address this concern in a way that really draws on our geopolitical expertise. So General Marks, uh, maybe you can discuss that in the event of a contested election, how the national security apparatus will function. Yeah, Rachel, that's a great question. Um, I would say the short answer is no change. Do, it doesn't matter. Um, in uniform and as a part of the national security apparatus my entire life at multiple levels, let's be frank. Um, I've worked for a number of commanders in chief and it never mattered whether that was a Democrat or a Republican. I never felt challenged in terms of any of the mission orders or any of the directives that I received if there was a challenge, ethically, morally, legally, professionally, if that was an issue, I would have the opportunity not to execute. But I never faced that. And I never worried about who was in the White House. That was not relevant to me. So I wanna make sure that everybody understands that 
what the national security folks that are involved in this thing called the apparatus of national security are deeply professional, incredibly experienced, and very objective about their view in terms of the, the purpose that they are trying to achieve. It's not about self, it's about the national security and how they can contribute in their particular way. I think it's fair to say that whether the, there is a reason why Capitol Hill is on one side of the Potomac and the Department of Defense is in Virginia on the other side of the Potomac. That's an incredible distinctive line that really differentiates between what matters over here and what matters here in front of me. So the short answer is we continue, the national security apparatus continues to stay focused, laser focused on what's important and what their mission set is, irrespective of what takes place, that, those internecine, what I would say, and oftentimes very vitriolic, publicly embarrassing kinds of conversations that take place in politics always all over the globe. Let's not feel like we're the only folks that act silly when it comes to politics. But those discussions are necessary. It really is an invitation to struggle. But the, the platform on which that struggle takes place is a very solid platform called national security and those that exist to make sure the national security functions can happen and happen precisely and effectively. General Walsh, the other side of this question, should there be a leadership vacuum? How do you view um, our adversaries potentially reacting and responding? Yeah, that's interesting, Rachel. I think, you know, if you kind of look at a little bit what's going on with the COVID-19, you know, in the background, uh, we talk about mischief going on. I don't think the election itself and what's going on in the U.S. would cause us to drive any closer to to arm conflict with any of our adversaries that they would take any opportunity to do that. I mean, I just don't see that scenario. What I do see though, is what we're seeing with the COVID is, you know, China and Iran, maybe a little bit Russia too, you know, kind of throwing, uh, you know, um, sand on our feet, you know, by saying, hey, look at how the US is handling it. You know, you talk about uh, the US being a global leader de democratically and look at how they're having their own problems dealing with their own elections. So I think that would be something that they would kind of really try to influence things through social media uh, on their own uh, television to try to show, put the U.S. in a bad light. Um, when you kind of break it down into, you know, how they would kind of look at this, I, I think, you know, there's, there's a couple ways that the, uh, the Chinese, you know, it's debatable where the national intelligence side has come out and said China is for um, uh, the uh, Biden, administra Biden administration and get rid of tr uh, Trump. There's also views on that that I've seen a lot of discussion over that, that really that view of it is he's been very erratic in a lot of ways from a Chinese view and it's allowed them a lot of opportunities. So I, I think as you get into this, um, this, if the election was contested, they would take advantage of this gray zone, we call it. And the gray zone being operating below the radar of going to armed conflict. What we've kind of seen uh, China do with Hong Kong in the South China Sea, more pressure on Taiwan, uh, delaying the elections in Hong Kong, those kind of things were normally the US would stand up to them on uh, in the world politics, where maybe that would go under the radar and it wouldn't be seen with what's going on in, the, in there. The Russians, I think you could see them continue to uh, 
um, try to influence things in their influence operations through social media uh, in the cyber area. And we could see that. And I think the Iranians would follow in the same thing anywhere they could shed bad light on the U.S. and to kind of tarnish the U.S.'s reputation for their own advantage is what I think we would expect out of them during this time period. Peter, I think you wanted to say a few words. Yeah, I just want to highlight a couple of things that we didn't get to talk about that I think are important. And, you know, some of these are very positive. So I think when we look at India, right, we spent a lot of time talking about China and China strategies. We are clearly embracing India. Um, two years ago, we would have favored geopolitically Pakistan at every step of the way because of their, you know, support, I guess, in terms of the war on terror and our felt need for that. We are shifting much more to working with India. That's a great possible base for us to work with consumers. So I think companies are going to have to develop to the extent they haven't already more and more of an India strategy. That's really something we're looking at. I think we'll wind up talking more about the Koreas again next year. I think to the extent that there were some conversations this year, everything got derailed by COVID. So that's another area to look at. My probably biggest fear from a wildcard standpoint is Taiwan. It's come up multiple times in this conversation. And it's so important to us in this industry in that they, the Taiwanese insurance companies are large, large holders and buyers of U.S. corporate debt. They like U.S. investment grade debt. If anything happens that slows that purchase down or stops it, we could see spreads wide. And so I think we really have to look at Taiwan. I think, as the generals have discussed, China will not be as aggressive with Taiwan as they are in Hong Kong. But for me, when I look at it from a macro and how this could impact U.S. markets, Taiwan is a much bigger story. It's off our radar screen right now, but I think that's something we have to keep a very close eye because that would feed very quickly into our markets if anything was to happen to how Taiwan interacts with the U.S. Well, in the last six minutes that we have, definitely want to address some of the questions from the audience. Uh, one that we received was uh, asking what we view the potential next country to sign a peace deal with Israel, obviously Bahrain, UAE. Uh, General Walsh, do you have an opinion on the matter? Yeah, I think there's a number of countries, you know, I think President Trump has said there's up to five countries that are, are, are lining up potentially, um, and even mentioned Saudi Arabia. Now, I think it's going to take, uh, Saudi Arabia is going to go very slow on this, but I think eventually the dominoes are starting to fall on this, Rachel. Um, you know, which countries it could be, I don't know. We've heard Morocco could be one that's coming on. Um, there's, there's many that could fall in line with this. And I think just really more importantly than which one comes next, that it started to happen. And this has been a long time coming. And from a geostrategic standpoint, the thing that I think that's really interesting, this whole thing, is these countries are now looking at their own national interests, what's important for Bahrain, what's better for the UAE, instead of looking at it more of let's line up with the Palestinian problem and Iran. It's more like Iran's the threat, let's isolate Iran. Israel has been always the center of a lot of that. They're gonna go more in the direction of what's good for us. We would rather be more like Israel, the economy Israel, how Israel is developing, than to be in these other countries that we've seen that have been downfalls throughout the Arab Spring like Libya. Um, so I think this is probably not getting as much credit as it should be, but as we look down the road, this hopefully is an opportunity for U.S. leadership, not only in the Middle East, but globally, 
but really also to be able to um, start to sideline Iran, our real nemesis in the Middle East, to be able to ostracize them outside and bring others over to our way of thinking. You know, Rachel, if I can jump on top of what Bob just said, um, just to kind of, kind of put a point on it, totally agree. Uh, this really has less to do with Palestine um, and the criticisms that we hear right now of the current deal is that the Palestinians have been left out. That's a true statement. But this is about how do we isolate, as Bob described, Iran. And I would think as a wild card, a very interesting next country to align itself similarly to what uh, the president just achieved with the UAE and Israel would be Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim country with a huge Chinese presence and a huge increasing Saudi presence. That would be a very interesting move and it would affect two very significant regions simultaneously. General Marks, uh, to close out our conversation, one of the other questions you received um, really touched on our discussion about the difference between uh, a potential Biden uh, approach to China or a Trump approach to China. So with that in mind, um, in your view, a more multilateral approach or a more one-on-one uh, -on -one approach, do you see one uh, maybe having more of a benefit? I know our team has in the past talked about how our strength in the region is our allies and that's one of China's weaknesses. So um, anything you can add in the last few minutes that we have yeah, I, I would I would say Rachel, that's a great question. Unequivocally, and, and Bob and I come in this from comment this from the exact same perspective. When I went to war multiple times, I sure was glad I had some other partners with me, and I'm glad I had partners that understood the region where I was now a newbie. I was a guy coming in in many cases like a pig looking at a watch, but I had locals who understood the currents, the folds in the terrain, the issues, and I could rely on them over the course of time. So multilateralism truly is the way to go. And there are some current um, initiatives underway. There's a new, organiz a new organization, I'll call it new, called the Quad, which is India, Australia, the United States, and Japan together looking at, you know, what are their, the confluence of interests for that part of the world? Where do we economically overlap? Where do we militarily overlap? What are the challenges that we share and how can we agree on what a solution might look like? And I think that's, that's an approach that needs to expand. And we talk about the G7. Um, Marx's view of the world is the G7 is an artificial organization. It should include Russia and China and India. It should be the G10 so that we can have at that level in a very tight group the critical issues being discussed that Bob has already talked about, that Peter has already talked. We're talking about nuclear proliferation. We're talking about trade imbalances. We're talking about economic inequalities. We're talking about cyber as the primary means of continual conflict. We talk about having the capacity to, to mobilize for conflict. Well, we're in conflict and we're in conflict online 24 seven. How are we approaching that? Well, we have to have some protocols in place. The short answer is multilateral kind of engagements are the way to go if you want to get the, the, those discussion points on the table and resolutions reached in a timely way. That has to be driven from th this election will have to, this new administration will have to drive that. I'm convinced. Yeah, and I think, I just want to add, I think Lawson, a little bit of the shuffle last year during the NATO conversations, 
you know, China is becoming a part of the NATO conversation, right? I think NATO was really introduced as a not new part of the conversation, but I think people realized NATO can't just exist really in its traditional role of worrying about Russia. So last year we did see NATO discussing China a little bit more. So I think, again, it, it's not going to be necessarily quite black or white how this is all produced. We're already heading down that path where we do want to use some of our allies. Having said that, I think we also have to be well aware China is more than comfortable trying to, you know, step up and pursue its own cause, right? During this COVID, while we were battling with China, China actually did send a lot of supplies which were accepted into Italy. So there's going to be a lot of moving parts on this. And it's not just going to be up to us. It's going to be up to our allies. It's also going to be up to China how this plays out. So I think it's something that's evolving. We're watching. But I also would not make it I think sometimes it comes across as it's been too unilateral right now, or it's only unilateral right now. Maybe it's been more unilateral than it should be, but there are a lot of processes that have been going on. We were able to work with our allies when the UK was looking at adopting Huawei equipment, which would have been very concerning for the group of five eyes who share data to have you know, one of the five using, you know, the Huawei equipment. So I think there's a lot already going on where we are working with people. So I think we got to be very careful not to make this a pure black and white issue. It's I think how we're behaving is going to adjust, but also what our allies want is adjusting and what China wants is adjusting. So it's going to be a lot of moving parts going forward. And I think a lot has been done so far that's been okay. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Peter, for closing out um, our Q&A portion. Everyone who joined today, thank you so much for the time. Um, we look forward to answering any further questions that you may, you may have. Please address them at, at info at academysecurities.com for any feedback or follow-up questions. Thank you again for joining us today and we look forward to talking to you again soon.